You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 90. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You have reached another Local Maximum, episode 90 now. We are in the 90s, quickly closing out the year. Uh, wow, soon it will be three-digit episodes. So that is exciting to me. Uh, this is Monday, Monday evening, October 28th. I'm almost doing this live tonight. Um, aren't there Halloween specials? Is that not a thing for podcasts? I feel like I need to say something like, it's a spooky local maximum or something like that. It's so spooky that we're going to find all sorts of people from across the political spectrum making bad statistical inferences. Ah, all right. So this is a solo show today. I'm going to do some news of the day today as well as... Uh, Pulling up some tweets where I'm kind of looking for trouble, but not in the way people usually do it when they are looking for trouble in tweets. I'm I'm not trying to ruin anyone's life or anything, but self-proclaimed, quote, philosopher, Stefan Molyneux, who I guess I would describe as like a libertarian podcaster slash YouTube guy with some alt-right views. Maybe that's far-right for those in Europe. I'm not entirely sure. Europeans tend to do a bad job at mapping their politics onto their uh, American counterparts. So I don't think I'd be any better at doing the reverse. But I see his stuff everywhere. There's like, you know, there's a lot of people listening to him. And he's constantly beating people over the head with the idea that I have the best arguments. But his statistical and causality arguments are really lacking and it's a pattern, so I'll I'll get into that at the end. Also, I'm sure you've seen this before. I'm going to take on uh, a professor who says that he predicted the last nine presidential elections, and now we have to listen to him because he predicted the last nine presidential elections. Um, before every presidential election, they always have guys who say, uh, I predicted the, all these other presidential elections. I have this model, whatever. Oh, sure. Okay, we'll see about that. And finally... I want to cover a few clips of Mark Zuckerberg, who yet again was testifying before Congress. And I know I went over it the first time around in episode 10. Uh, Back in episode 10, he was talking about, I mean, I think he was talking about Cambridge Analytica in episode 10. But this time he's talking about Facebook's proposed cryptocurrency Libra, which I covered with Miriam in episode 72. And I want to see if I can tie this together, all of these stories together into kind of a theme. And that theme is confirmation bias and narrative building. Now, what do I mean by narrative building and confirmation bias? I think that sometimes we collect a few facts and are able to come up with a simple story to explain those facts. Now, once we've staked our claim, well, it's kind of embarrassing to admit that you're wrong. So every new fact then must fit into the existing narrative. We all do this to some extent. If someone online is arguing with you and you need to beat them in an argument, uh, you know you can find a link that disproves their point and illustrates your own point. Now, there are probably links out there that seem to suggest your opponent's point of view, but you're not going to find that and you're certainly not going to post it. And uh, if your opponent posts it, well, fine. You know That's just, you, know, you can find any website that says anything. And you might ask, you know, well, how can I form any beliefs if I don't have some sort of story or some sort of narrative to explain the world and kind of tie it all together? And you're exactly right. That's why this is so difficult. We need stories. We need narratives. We need to form hypotheses. And we need, in the language of Bayesian inference, to have you know prior beliefs. So 
we we need it, but at the same time, it also gets us into trouble. It gets us into trouble if we're constantly throwing away data that doesn't fit, and we're seeing the world through a lens of that one simple story that we've already predetermined is the answer. And when that tendency is taken to the extreme, it's called fanaticism. It's hysteria. Not good stuff. In less extreme cases that we all fall into, we miss important trends and we make bad decisions, less than optimal decisions. And Maybe you want to prevent doing that. And uh, we also get caught in, da-da-da, a local maximum. So that's our theme for today. Let's begin with our stories. So last time, uh, Mark Zuckerberg went before Congress. It was to talk about Cambridge Analytica and, to a lesser extent, bias and fake news in the social media. Well, actually, no. In fact, I think it was supposed to be only about Cambridge Analytica, but members of Congress hijacked it to talk about what they wanted to talk about. Uh, and uh, exactly the same thing happened this time. Last time, members of Congress were made fun of across the internet for not knowing how Facebook works and some of it I thought was exaggerated. You know, someone asked, how do you make money? And he said, Congressman, we run ads. I thought he knew the answer to that. Uh, you know, when you begin, when you start to question someone, you often start with some basic questions to kind of set up the basic facts and get everyone on the same page. It's not because, it's not always because the questioner doesn't know the answer to the question. You know, I ask questions on the local maximum on this very program to some of my guests. You know, I, I damn well know the answer to some of these questions, but I want to start off by letting them tell it in their own words, in their own vocabulary, so that we don't have any misunderstanding. It's, it's always, sometimes it's hard to say, am I going to describe it or is the guest going to describe it? I feel like um, I have to, uh, because if it's the, the thing that the guest is an expert in, I don't want to jump on their train, but at the same time, I don't want to make them explain something that's very basic to them. So it's always, it's always an open question how to approach that in the interview, something that I have learned recently on the local maximum. Um, but, uh, you know, oftentimes it's good to get on the same page. Uh, well, uh, it's a new Congress now, and um, that was the old Congress. If you thought it was dumb then, it got so dumb now. The main focus was supposed to be on Facebook's proposal to introduce a new currency called Libra. Uh, it's a cryptocurrency, but it's not a free-floating independent cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and others. It's more like a cryptocurrency that is backed by um, by traditional fiat currencies. You know, the dollar, the pounds, the euro, all those things will go into kind of a basket. Um, so some in the government aren't going to like uh, this competition with the U.S. dollar, that's for sure, although it kind of uses the U.S. dollar. Uh, and of course, we revisit Cambridge Analytica and fake news, but let's listen to Congresswoman Presley from Massachusetts. Matt, I can't pronounce Massachusetts. From Massachusetts, ask Mark Zuckerberg about Libra. Mark Zuckerberg said that one of the goals of Libra is to quote bank the unbanked. That's also been stated as a goal of of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. There are other services out there that say that's goal. It's generally a, considered a, a very um, a much needed thing and very few services, some services have been able to provide it in some sectors, but certainly not there yet. So it's, it's in other words, it's to give financial services to people who currently cannot afford it. Now, if you think he's likely to succeed in that, um, well, I, well, let me say this. I don't think that he's likely to succeed in that for a variety of reasons. And I think I laid those out in episode 73, but it's his right 
it's Facebook's right to to try it. Um, and basically, Congress is going to determine if they have that right. But get a load of how this woman questions him about it. You represent the power, but I don't think you understand the pain. There's underbanking because people are broke. And so let me just ask you this question. Yes or no, is it free to use the Calibra wallet? Uh, Congresswoman, the Calibra wallet isn't a service that is available today. Assuming we were able to launch it, it will be free. So there's no fee? Uh, Congresswoman, that's the, the goal, is to make it so that... Uh, so there is no fee? Congresswoman, the goal is to okay, make it... Okay, moving on. So if it costs money to buy Libra and costs money to use the Calibra wallet, I fail to see how this helps people with virtually no money. Didn't you hear... What she said there, what she did there, she asked if the service would be free. And her next question assumes that the answer is going to be no. And so uh, it goes on. So if it's not free, all these people can't afford, uh, you know, if it's not free, Mr. Zuckerberg, then didn't you know that all of these people can't afford it? Didn't think about that, Zuckerberg. Come on. Even if you're Facebook's biggest critic, even if you're like the biggest Facebook critic, you know they're going to make it free. They make everything. Well, they don't make everything free. They can't run ads for free. But, you know, a a service like this, you know that Facebook is going to make free. It's not like his answer was surprising. Maybe she wanted him to give a like more direct yes, no answer, but he was trying to be measured. I mean, he is, you know, (laughs) he is liable if he says something that's not correct. After all, he has to be very careful here. So she wasn't even listening to him. She just has a script. And she already has the story written before getting the answer to the question. And she already has a rebuttal to an answer that Mr. Zuckerberg uh, didn't give. So let's go on. So there is no fee. Uh, Congresswoman, that's the the goal, is to make it so that... uh, So there is no fee. Congresswoman, the goal is to make it... Okay, moving on. So if it costs money to buy Libra... And costs money to use the Calibra wallet. I fail to see how this helps people with virtually no money. You are attempting to use technology to solve what is inherently an issue of wealth. At the end of the day, you are a business. So what is in the business interest for you here? And do you believe in what you are building? Do you believe in what you are building? Uh, Congresswoman, yes. So yes or no, would you leave behind your children's inheritance in Libra? Uh, Congresswoman... Do you believe in what you're building? Yes, I, I do. And, and Would you leave behind your children's inheritance in Libra? I think it's a fair question because I, I think it's, it's, you've proven that we cannot trust you with our emails, with our phone numbers. So why should we trust you with our hard-earned money? Well, Congresswoman... Reclaiming I, my time... Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, She didn't even let him answer any of the questions. It's pure grandstanding. I think he answers later on that he's going to give away his money. But yes, he would give his inheritance in Libra because it's backed by a basket of national currencies. So again, none of his answers match the congresswoman's assumptions. By the way, if you, you don't have to answer yes. I would leave my inheritance in this new business venture in order to say I'm going to start this business. I mean, I guess if you're going to, you know, target um, people who are, uh, you know, people, uh, if you're going to 
target the unbanked, then maybe you want something a little more stable. But in general, you don't have to be able to say, oh, I'm going to leave my inheritance in this new thing in order to start this new thing. New businesses are risky. What an attack on entrepreneurial risk-taking. What an attack on the values of free enterprise. Now, you might be asking to yourself, oh my gosh, how many people in Congress are this dumb? And just to give my opinion, I don't think she's dumb at all. This is a successful grandstanding to her constituents and her donors. It's us who are dumb, not them. They know how to play this thing. Uh, There are so many other examples in this. If I wanted to talk about loaded questions, I'd go with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There are others that are even less coherent. And it's interesting that they came in, they all came in with a different story that they wanted to tell to kind of grandstand to their constituents. So I'm not going to go over all of them today. Uh, In the case that we just saw, and I'm kind of being nice here, uh, the story was Facebook's new Libra product won't work for the poorest Americans, as they claim. And the assumption was made that they're going to change Libra. They're going to like charge out the wazoo for this product. At least it was on the subject of the hearing, which was Libra. Most of them chose to some, talk about something that's like completely unrelated to the the topic of the of the hearing. Uh, someone talk, some of them did talk about fact-checking. I, I thought that was interesting. I interpret that as Congress wanting Facebook to portray the truth as Congress sees it, rather than getting the whole fire hose of information. There are dangers from the whole fire hose of, in, of information, but there are dangers of letting Congress set, um, set truth in, in, in information, which is you know, exactly what... Uh, exactly what we don't want. Uh, Very tough topic to tackle. I get one perspective from my guest next week, and uh, maybe I'll discuss it more in a co-hosted show in the future. All right, moving on. Here's another one I found recently, another political one. Actually, these are all political ones today. This is a very political show. Uh, This one is from a political episode, I mean. This one is from this professor. His name is Alan Lichtman at American University. He's going on TV. He's selling books. He starts with this line that he's correctly predicted the last nine presidential elections. Wow, nine elections predicted. He must have made a fortune betting on those nine elections. Or not. So here's his explanation of how the prediction model works on CBS News. Not only are your predictions overwhelmingly correct, but you often make them very early. Can you give us an explanation of how your prediction model works? It's very simple. Forget the polls, forget the pundits, forget conventional political analysis. American presidential elections are votes up or down on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. And I have six, uh, 13 keys, 13 key factors that gauge that strength and performance. As you can see, some of them are political keys. Some relate to the economy. Others deal with policy change, social unrest, scandal, foreign and military successes and failures. And only two keys have anything to do with the wow. identity of the nominee. Okay, okay. So he has... 13 variables, 13 variables, and he fits the 13 variables into nine elections. Holy crap. Remember when I got alarmed because Aaron used the word polynomial, and I don't want to get into polynomial on this show, but it's the same thing here. You're taking a few data points, and you're drawing these squiggly wiggly lines through all these data points, and you're continuing them on to make your next prediction. There is no way I can take this seriously. And some of these 13 points are totally subjective points. Like one of them is charisma of the candidate or 
foreign military success. Well, that's been kind of, uh, in, in recent years, that's been very subjective. So I really have to ask first, did he really predict all of these elections in the past? Like, is he on the record? How can we confirm that he's been on the record uh, to predict 1992? Uh, did he make multiple predictions and just like pick the one that he liked? Did he uh, predict the popular vote or the electoral college? That's kind of interesting because he could say, well, you know, I predicted this one candidate won, but they did win the popular vote. And um, even though they, they didn't win the election, something doesn't add up here. And nine guesses in a row, I guess if they were random, that's kind of impressive. You know, two to the ninth, uh, that's one in 512 chance. Eh, you know, that's not even that impressive. Um, but uh, some of these, uh, Aaron was telling me that, that it reminds him of this old scam where you send out a newsletter and you predict the results of a football game every week, but you send out 512 of them in this example. And so you send it out nine times and in exactly one of those newsletters, you predicted it correctly nine times. Now that person has to give you uh, has to give you money for your ironclad Super Bowl prediction. Um, doesn't seem that cost effective, but uh, maybe <laughs> I'm, people get convinced that other people can predict things for far less, though. So, as in this case, this case, uh, uh, this case illustrates it. And, and some of these elections, you know, you think it was, it's not exactly nine flips of the coin. Some of these elections were pretty easy to predict. I would say like the 1996 election with Clinton winning, uh, winning re-election against uh, Bob Dole, 1984, um, Reagan won on a landslide. And I also remember like in the year 2000, George W. Bush won Florida by 400 votes. So could you really say that those 400 votes were determined causally by his complicated 300-point model. If one of the points changed, would those 400 votes go in the other way? I mean, that's that's crazy. This is something a lot of people are going to believe, but you can't take this seriously as anything other than an interesting conversation piece. I'm sure some of these um, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of these points, like you know, charisma of the candidate or party mandate or something, I'm sure some of them do get you votes. Charisma, do people want a party change? But it's not as simple as unlocking six keys, because he says if you, uh, if you lose six of the points, if you're the incumbent, then you lose the election. So I, it can't be that simple. I guarantee you that. And it also feels like these keys were written to reflect the time from the late 1980s to the present with the issues that were present. For example, scandal. Uh, that was written to account for Clinton, I'm pretty sure, for the 2000 election. Third party, probably to account for Ross Perot in 92, maybe Ralph Nader in 2000. Would this even be relevant at other points in history? Did this predict uh, President Benjamin Harrison and Chester A. Arthur? I guess Chester A. Arthur didn't actually win the election. Uh, Garfield won the election, <laughs> so and, and then he got shot in Arthur. Whatever. Okay, and if not, why would we assume that uh, this would be relevant? Uh, in the future, if it doesn't predict the past, if it's only this this particular point in time. So he's if he's actually on record before 1984 with this 13 point model, as it's written now, not not adjusted as he went on, and if it's worked every time, and there's an objective way to measure each of the 13 points, then I would be mildly impressed. If he came up with this kind of like 10 years ago, three elections ago, and he keps adjusting his 13 points. I'm not I'm not impressed at all. His next big prediction is that Donald Trump is going to be impeached. 
which people have been talking about for a long time, might be moving on this next few months, I don't know. But he's also calling for impeachment at the same time. It's weird when you're predicting something, you're also calling for it. He says that the Democrats need to impeach Donald Trump in order to win the election in 2012 because that successfully flips the scandal button. Uh, You don't flip the scandal button unless there is a vote for impeachment. So that's one, you get one out of the six of the 13 points that you need to tilt the election in your favor. So I don't know, maybe he's calling for impeachment so that his prediction comes true as well. Who knows? Here's another prediction for you on his predictions. In another few election cycles, his model will inevitably fail and it will either be forgotten or it will be amended. Oh, wait a minute. There's a 14th point that we didn't include uh, and uh, now we have to add it. Or, you know, sometimes you can uh, still win if you have six points against you, if one of the other points is, uh, is, is stronger. You know, all the, because none of, it's not even a probabilistic model. It's not even like Nate Silver where he has measurable things and he's coming up with, um, you know, quant- uh, quantifications of it. There's no probability in here. Each, each, uh, each point is either turned on or off. So, I mean, this is the type of stuff that seems to get a lot of attention in the media, like he was on CBS News, um, but uh, you might as well just consult a, uh, you know, a tarot card reader on the street. All right, finally, let's look at some of Stefan Molyneux's pronouncements. Uh, Stefan Molyneux, I'm trying to think of the tagline to describe him. I think I said he was a libertarian podcaster with some alt-right views. He was probably libertarian sometime in 2012. And then he started going very, I I don't know how you put it, he went in a very different direction. Uh, In fact, if you remember episode 70, I referenced the New York Times story uh, about uh, YouTube. It was an article about YouTube, about someone who got radicalized by YouTube. Oh my God, all these people are radicalized by YouTube. They're going to do all these terrible things. And basically nothing happened to him. He ended up rejecting those ideas. So some story that was. Uh, But Molyneux was kind of positioned as the gateway drug there. He was, you know, the um, uh, the unsuspecting uh, victim, as they uh, position him, sort of went on there looking for uh, life advice and ended up with this political ideology. Um, but one thing about Molyneux, he often presents, you know, long lists of sources and data and he says, hey, you can't disagree with me. It's just science and facts. How can you disagree with science? How can you disagree with facts? Well, proclaiming something science and fact doesn't actually make it science and fact. He does this all the time. He'll tweet things like this. Uh, notice that he claims to have very specific special knowledge on relationships. The data inference here is horrendously bad. Horrendously bad. And I'll get to that in a minute. So he tweets out this. The more sexual partners the woman has, the more likely she is to divorce her husband. Casual sex tends to destroy a woman's capacity to stay in love. Now, I know I have a large variety of people listening to this program. I don't want to tell you how to manage your love life. I don't want to tell you what your sex life should be. But in, this, in these tweets, he's totally full of bullcrap. Notice that the first sentence is a clear you know, statement of causality. Uh, more sexual partners before marriage and more divorce. That is a clear case of correlation without causation. Let me explain a little bit more. I looked into the data that he was citing. The data was from the CDC, which he posted 
Um, and then it was kind of reposted by the Heritage Foundation. So I think it gets recycled over and over. And it's old data. It's like 20-year-old data. And it's a pure correlation model that has obviously that has just obvious co-founders that anyone can see. Uh, for example, it doesn't take into account church attendance or geography or socioeconomic status. All these things control both variables. They control both how many sex partners you had and they control the divorce rate. So you'd expect a correlation even with no effects. And this is just a very clear-cut, obvious one. Also, other studies show that the correlation changes over the years, over different decades, and sometimes it inverts from expected. So you wouldn't uh, expect that if it were a direct causation. Uh, The one I found is from the Institute for Family Studies. It's it's a conservative think tank, so this is not necessarily the conclusion that uh, I assume some of the people inside the organization were looking for. They found that the correlation uh, waned in the 20th century between number of sex partners and and divorce rate. And while women who had zero sex partners are least likely to get divorced, um, again, they don't could, this is not corrected for you know religion or any of those things. The women, the the women who have had three to nine sex partners were actually measured as being less likely to divorce than the women who had one to two sex partners. So does that mean that if you had two sex partners and you want to reduce the chance of your marriage that it will end in divorce, you just like hurry up and have sex with a few more guys? Of course not. This is just spurious correlations. No causal effect proven or even suggested, and I would not run your life based on these studies. I would run your life based on other things. Uh, Another trick he does, well, let's look at the last line um, uh, of Molyneux now. So first he states his causation, his causal model, and then he ends with the last line, which is casual sex tends to destroy a woman's capacity to stay in love. And that is just a total narrative building based off the false causality that he created. None of the studies even come close to saying that. Notice the trick that he did. All of a sudden, you know, it goes from number of sex partners to casual sex. So he very much like sneakily changed, because sex partner is not necessarily casual sex. So he very sneakily changed the wording in there in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the tweet. Ah, oh, he's a sneaky one. Uh, that that that's a trick that people use all the time. It's easy to fall for it. Um, and so I hate to say this, but I've been reading Molyneux's statements for a long time, and it seems like he wants to return to a time where women's premarital sexual history is put under a lot more scrutiny and to determine certain people as like damaged goods. Notice he's focusing on women and not men here. And in Molyneux's world, the common theme is. Women's choices in dating and partner selection being the root cause of society's problems. I'm not just making this up, by the way. He just he talks about this all the time. So he's got to fit everything into that, um, which is uh, which is pretty crazy. Here's another ridiculous tweet of his. No data provided. Uh, he, and I quote: "If you don't have or want kids, I generally don't care what you have to say about society. You are not part of its continuation." Uh, I don't feel like there's anything really to debunk here. It's a bitter Twitter comment declaring a whole group of people as not part of the continuation of society, whatever that means. I'm sure there could be a long debate about this, but I think it illustrates the narrative that Molyneux is trying to build. Whatever you think of it, don't try to argue this one on Twitter. You will lose brain cells doing it, as I unfortunately have good thing. I have so many extra brain cells that it doesn't really matter. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, people 
come back at him with exceptions. And he said, well, I said generally, so it doesn't matter. Oh, my God. Um, I don't even want to go there, but you can just see how ridiculous some of this stuff is. Um, all right. So let me get into the takeaways from all of these stories here. Uh, we are all engaged in confirmation bias all the time. So how do you decide if one person is more credible than another. And I wrote down a few kind of rules of thumb that you can use to tell that, that I think are good rules of thumb. It's not the only rules of thumb, but there are good rules of thumb for telling if someone is credible and someone's not. So I would say in, in one example, the more credible person, for example, would be familiar with alternative theories. They would be discussing alternative theories than to the one they believe. Or if they're trying to be uh, objective, they present mul multiple hypotheses that are out there. And he steelmans those multiple hypotheses. By that, I mean that he tries to make uh, the other side's argument sound as best as possible and give them the most benefit of the doubt as possible. Because then you know they've thought this through and actually have given it due consideration. Uh, the less credible person, uh, on the other hand, will ignore theories that uh, contradict their own, or they'll prevent kind of a, they'll present kind of a straw man, they'll present a caricature of these alternative theories, um, and say, oh, this person believes this, we can, uh, this ridiculous thing they obviously don't believe, uh, and then we'll just uh, dispense of it right there. Another example is that I think um, a more credible person will make predictions that hold up after the fact. So, it's not like they said, I predicted it. Well, let me start with the less credible here. So the less credible person talks about their past predictions and they say, hey, I've had all these hits in the past, but you have to watch out because those hits could be cherry picked or they could misremember or they could just be making it up. Um, and then, or they could have predicted something very well in one field of knowledge and then it doesn't work in another field of knowledge. Um, so watch out for that because sometimes, you know, when people say they've predicted everything in the past, their predictions don't work when you try to apply it yourself and predict the future. Uh, you know, watch out for people who say, you would have been rich if you took my advice. So you better take my advice now. You know, be careful of those. I think that um, predict, I mean, not, not that anyone who says that is wrong, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you, you have to watch their predictions and see if, they really hold up under scrutiny. So a more credible person would make predictions and then those predictions hold up after the fact and those predictions are not uh, open to interpretation. Um, so I think that's why I really like what Anthony Aguirre is doing with, um, with the, the metaculous prediction engine is actually to see whether people's predictions hold up and trying to come up with a objective way of uh, measuring these predictions. I'll link to that on the show notes page. That's Anthony Aguirre's episode on Metaculus. So how's my Brexit prediction doing? Ah, not not too well, I'll tell you that. Um, but I did get some points on the Metaculus engine for, I think I predicted certain aspects of the Canadian election very well. So, And I didn't remember that I actually predicted that. So I don't know, that could have been luck, but whatever. Um, I got points for that. Brexit, uh, no, uh, looks like it wasn't going to happen. But I, I hedged pretty good, so maybe I, maybe I'll gain some points. Uh, anyway, in markets, I think the more credible markets are the mature markets because those are 
markets where the people who are big players, they became big players because they were right about those markets in the past, and then they made more and more money over long periods of time. So this includes uh, prediction markets that that match that, although a lot of the prediction markets like predictit.org is very good. I use that for the presidential elections, but you have to understand it's pretty small in volume. So it's it it's not that, I, I don't think it's manipulated directly, but it might not be um, it might not be using the best information available, but I think it's it, it's pretty good. Um, but it's it's not as good as I would say the most mature markets. And I would also say more credible are ideas that have kind of stood the test of time. Um, if you have an idea that's a, kind of a very old idea and hasn't been knocked down, um, that's a very uh, that's a very good point in its favor. On the other side, uh, less credible would be immature markets, you know, people who were kind of in the right place at the right time saying, well, now I'm rich, you can listen to me, when really they just got lucky, they just got a lottery ticket. Um, sort of link and source farms. You remember this. Google's been better at this. But for those of you who are around, mm, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of spam on Google. There's still a lot of spam today. And the reason why there was a lot of spam on Google is that the Google algorithm was based on links. Um, and so if I built 100 spam pages, well, they don't have any inbound links. So you might say, well, those pages are not going to get very highly rated on Google. But if Google thinks they're all independent pages, I could have them link to each other and then um, and do it in kind of a convincing way, and then all of a sudden they start moving up the ranks. That's black hat SEO. That's uh, that's the evil side of getting your um, your stuff to the top of the search ranking. And Google's been better, you know, Google, and in more more recently, but you know, not that recently, probably in the last ten fifteen years ago, um, was getting much better at kind of taking out those cases. And I think the cases that exist are just very clever now. Um, but you can look at link farms this way. I mean, you can also look at source farms. You could say, well, person A has this idea. They got it from person B. They got it from person C. And then person C got it from person A. Maybe somewhere in this kind of circular link farm, there were a bunch, like, you know, everybody's citing each other. And so you think they have sources, but in really, in reality, they're all kind of citing each other. And maybe, uh, maybe there is some base source in there, but it, it snuck in on a fallacy at one point, and nobody, uh, you know, nobody looked at it. So watch out for those cases where everybody believes something because everybody else believes something, and there's no ground truth to keep them grounded. That's always kind of a red flag. So it could be this could happen in academia. This could happen in political journalists. It happens all the time. So. Those are some kind of markers to watch out for, red flags, green flags, and that's how you can build narratives, but also keep an open mind and uh, not fall for some of these fallacies. Um, I'll also link to episode 82 with Henry Abramson because I asked him towards the end, you know, how can you, you know, how do you... Uh, find credible YouTube videos, and he gave a very good answer for that. He went back to the ancient Greeks and talked about uh, ethos, pathos, and logos, and so I, I will link to that. Um, today's was mostly about logos. That's the appeal to logic, which uh, I uh, I think is pretty good, but there, the others are like ethical appeal and emotional appeal, which do have um, do have very strong... Um, roles to play. Um, and so I think maybe we can kind of break that down in another episode. 
So next week, I talk to Ad Week reporter Shoshana Wadinsky. We talk about Facebook again, so we continue that, and also just how insane the ad tech industry is. You're going to love it. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.